Welcome to the Peavine Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Joel Sutherland, so that we can help you apply biblical truth to your daily life. You can always join us in person each Sunday at 8.30 a.m. and 11 here on our beautiful campus in Rock Spring, Georgia. Would you take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. I started a sermon series last week entitled Thanks a Lot. We're over the next uh, two or three weeks as we just kind of surround this Thanksgiving season. We're going to look at Thanksgiving in our lives because here's, here's what... We're told, here's what the Bible tells us about Thanksgiving, that for the Christian, we're not supposed to be thankful. Notice this in Colossians 2, 7, we are supposed to abound with Thanksgiving, like we're supposed to be above and beyond. We're not supposed to be people who just say thank you. We're supposed to be people who are overflowing, is how one translation says it, overflowing, abounding with Thanksgiving. Now, science and psychology, the study of humans have, have caught, up with the, caught up with the Bible. And here's what modern psychology tells us, that when you learn to express gratitude during times of adversity or times of turmoil in your life, that it leads to greater happiness and get this greater resilience in your life. Greater resilience. Like we're, we, we tend not to be real strong nowadays. We tend not to be real tough nowadays. And so one of the reasons is we're not as thankful as what we ought to be. And so the more I express that, not only that, here's what psychology tells us, that of all the attitudes you can develop in your life, the attitude of gratitude is the one that is most strongly, get this, associated with mental health. I want to preach today on being a Thanks, be a thanksgiver. Let me show you what, what psychology tells us. That expressing gratitude improves mental, physical, and relational well-being. Being grateful also impacts the overall experience of happiness. And these effects tend to be, look at that, long-lasting. Now, now, look at this with me. If we learn to develop an attitude of gratitude, here's what we learn. Here's what happens. Our minds get better, our bodies get better, our relationships get better, and we're happier for longer. And that's why the Bible tells us to be overflowing with thanksgiving. God doesn't have to have your thanksgiving, but here's what he knows. When you're thankful to him, it makes you a happier, a stronger, and a better person. So I want to preach today on be a thanksgiver. Before I dive into the sermon, I, I want us to just thanksgivings this week, and uh, I want to give you some fodder uh, to take home to your family get-togethers. All right, let's look at some Thanksgiving fun facts for the week. I'm going to give you a test. 100,000 plus. Does anybody know what that number represents in relation to Thanksgiving? No? Y'all are dumber than the early service. That's the number of questions answered by the Butterball Turkey Hotline in November and December. No, you cannot cook a frozen turkey. Doesn't work. You ask. Let me ask you another question. Two NFL teams have played a game on Thanksgiving every Thanksgiving since 1966. These two teams have been on your television. Do you know who they are, men? That's right. All my Cowboy fans. Lions and the Cowboys. 
They're on this Thanksgiving. I think the Falcons are too. Are the Falcons on Josh Thanksgiving? Yeah, yeah. Saint, yeah. All right, here's some more fun facts. 4,500. Does anybody know what that represents in regard to Thanksgiving? The average number of calories consumed per person. I think that's about two and a half times what you are supposed to eat in a day, but you have at it, all right? Next number, 10 hours and 41 minutes. Do you know what that represents? The amount of exercise time it would take the average male to burn off that many calories. So here's the deal. If you'll just start running at midnight on Wednesday and run till 11 o'clock Thursday, you can eat all you want on Thanksgiving Day. It's a push. All right, now ladies, I'm going to put this next stat up here. I'm not even going to do it as a test because it's sad. Sad. 83% of Thanksgiving hosts prepare the meal solo. You get no help, ladies, on Thanksgiving Day. How many ladies prepare your meal solo? Let me see your hand. I know. You, you, all the ladies don't want to raise their hand because you, you don't want to embarrass your husband, right? Like, what's he going to do, ladies? What's he going to do, all right? Percent of Americans that will eat Thanksgiving at a restaurant. Guess how many? 20? No, 9%. 9%. While we're talking about it, the most expensive Thanksgiving meal in a restaurant in America, if you already know the answer, don't say it, but if you know, guess how much it is? Somebody said 1000 in the early service. I told you not to do that. $76,000. I know some of you are like, no, yeah, that's legit. I think it's called the Old Homestead Steakhouse in New York City. They, they, they got stuff on the menu I ain't never seen on the menu. Like They fly in Wagyu beef uh, and, and, and cook it for you there. And I mean, it's just amazing. You can go online and read about it. Uh, literally, yeah, and you're like, well, nobody does it. People do it. People do it. Matter of fact, there's always this prize associated with the meal. And I think it was last year, maybe the year before last, they had a uh, two-carat diamond ring as part of the meal. And, and the guy pulled it out of the stuffing and he proposed to his girlfriend during the meal. Hey, ladies, if he buys you a $76,000 meal, you pretty much got to say yes. <laughs> but if you're not going to spend that on Thanksgiving, what's the average cost of a 10-person Thanksgiving dinner? $49.12. So you choose. Whichever one you want to do is fine with me. All right, well, we're going to go. What's your favorite Thanksgiving food? Somebody answer. Turkey. Number two, stuffing. Number, number three is pumpkin pie. Number nine is mashed potatoes. Number six is sweet potatoes. Number three. They got their own little thing going on over there. I don't know what. Cranberry sauce. What are we thankful for this year? Here we go. Here's what you're thankful for. 88% said family, health, personal freedom, friends, mem memories, safety and security, fun experiences, achievements, and finally, finally, wealth. Wealth. Let me tell you what didn't make the list. Of all the things we're thankful for, what didn't make the list was resurrection. 
Do you know why? Because you've never thrown a Thanksgiving meal and been appreciative because one of your relatives came back from the dead. But in the story we read today, that is exactly what is taking place. They are throwing a Thanksgiving meal because one of their relatives has been raised from the dead. So let's stand together and honor God's word and let's read about this, this Thanksgiving meal. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse number one. And after two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the chief priest and the scribes sought how they might take Jesus by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. Being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came, in, came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil and of spikenard, and then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? Now, let me set the stage for you. I'm going to combine a couple stories in today's sermon. We could go, and in John chapter 12, we could read the same story. John gives us a few details Mark doesn't give us, and Mark gives us some details John doesn't give us. So I'm, I'm reading from Mark, but I'll talk about John a couple of times in the sermon. So what Mark hasn't done yet is told us the characters that we're talking about. And, but let me tell you who those are, because John identifies them. Uh, the lady who poured the oil on Jesus was Mary. Now, that not his mother Mary, but Mary and Martha Mary. Mary is the brother of, uh, sister of Lazarus and the sister of Martha. Now, the person who complained about the oil was Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, the betrayer of Jesus. So the guy who says this sentence is Judas. So I, I'll tell you that later on, but I'm just setting the stage for you. So he said, it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they criticized her sharply. And really, they was he, Judas, and he was leading a group of people to do that. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good, but me you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests and sought how they might betray him. And when they had heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, so he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> Now, let me, let me set the stage before, for you before I dive into the sermon. Now, in, in, in John chapter 12, we, the stage is set in John chapter 11, because here's what happens in John chapter 11, and this is what happens right before Mark chapter 14. And, and right before this supper, right before this dinner, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And what Mark 14 is, is a thank you celebration of, uh, uh, to, uh, of the family for raising Lazarus from the dead. They're saying, thank you, Jesus, for raising from the dead. Now, uh, the Bible tells us that this thank you dinner for Jesus was in the home of Simon the leper, or uh, more accurately described, Simon the ex-leper. So you have at this, this thank you dinner for Jesus, we have two characters that we know of. We have Simon who was a leper and Jesus healed, and we have Lazarus, who was dead and Jesus raised. Now, can you imagine the testimony service that broke out at this meal? 
Jesus said it's time to say the blessing over the meal. And Simon says, well, before we say the blessing of Jesus, could I say a word? I just want to remind everybody. And it wasn't too long ago that I was ate up with leprosy. When you're, at, when you're ate up with leprosy, this, the disease literally eats away at your body until you die. When you're a leper, you're not allowed to be home. When you're a leper, you're not allowed to have a job. When you're a leper, you have to live in the trash heaps on the outside of the city. And if anybody gets within touching distance of you, you have to throw your hands in the air and crowd, unclean, unclean, so people know to get away from you. That's the life I was living. I'd lost my family. I'd lost my job. I'd lost my livelihood. And I was, I was doomed to die. And one day Jesus walked by and, and Jesus had compassion on me and touched me. And he healed me of all my leprosy. And today I'm back with my family. Today I have a job. Today I'm whole because of what Jesus has done for me. And nobody has a better testimony than me. Lazarus says, well, if we're testifying... I was dead. Maybe at that testimony service, sitting there at the feet of Jesus was one woman who was so overcome with gratitude when she heard all that. Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, is looking and listening to Jesus, and she's listening to these testimonies, and she's overcome with emotion. And she looks at what God has done for her, and her heart pours out in thanksgiving to God. And at this dinner, this Thanksgiving dinner, Mary became a thanksgiver. And I'm going to tell you, that's the charge for every child of God. To look at our Heavenly Father, to look at Jesus and see all that he's done for us, all that we sang about today that he has done for us. To look at him and turn our lives into us being a thanksgiver for the cause of Christ. You say, preacher, how do we do that? Mary sets the pace for us. And let me show you how she did it. Number one, she had to give to the giver. She had to give to the giver. Now remember while we were meeting, Lazarus has been raised from the dead. This is a thank you dinner, literally a Thanksgiving meal because Lazarus had been raised from the dead. Now let me tell you a little bit about Lazarus being raised from the dead. Good grammar rules tells us you don't put modifiers in front of absolutes. So let, 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 me, let me explain that. When I say you don't put modifiers in front of absolutes, here's what I mean. You don't say about a woman that is with child, you don't say she's very pregnant right? She either is or she ain't. There is no very in that. When, when, you, when you turn on the lights in your house, when you go home and you flip a light switch on, you don't say the lights are very on. No, they're either on or they're off. When you're in a funeral home, you don't look at somebody and say they are very dead. They are either dead or alive there is no in-between that we love that expression. You know, uh, they were half dead. Nope, they were either all the way alive or they were all the way dead. You don't put modifiers in front of absolutes. It's unnecessary, except when Jesus walks on the scene. Because when Jesus walks on the scene, modifiers are necessary because Lazarus was very dead. How dead was Lazarus? Lazarus was so dead, we've already had the funeral. Lazarus was so dead, we've already ate a meal. Lazarus is so dead, he's already buried in the ground. Lazarus is so dead that the Bible says they were worried he already stinks. And Jesus came along and said, well, 
I'll get him up. Jesus raised Lazarus, hey, from the very dead. Stinking, buried, already had the funeral, very dead. They were shocked by it. Mary's heart was overflowing. Not only that, they, uh, because of what Jesus did raising Lazarus, the religious leaders didn't like it. And so now they're plotting to kill Jesus. And it has been with great personal sacrifice that he's raised Lazarus from the dead. Mary can't quit thinking about this incredible gift. And Mary feels the spirit of God moving upon her heart. And while she's sitting at that Thanksgiving meal, she goes and gets the most expensive thing she owns. And I'll talk about that a little later on in the sermon. But she gets the most expensive thing she owns, this bottle of perfume, this oil, this ointment. And she comes and Mark tells us she pours it on the head. She breaks the bottle and pours it on the head of Jesus. John tells us she poured it on his feet. In all probability, she would have done both. Mary is so touched by the gift that the giver has given to her that Mary cannot help but give back to the giver. Now listen to me carefully. I'll elaborate on that gift a little bit more in a second, but here's what I want you to know, that if our heart's desire is to be a thanksgiver, and it should be for every child of God, there is going to be something inside of you that urges you on to give to the one who has given to you Thankful people give back to the giver. When someone gives to you, there ought to be this natural reaction in your life to give back to them. And listen, when that someone who's given to you is God, there ought to be this natural inclination inside your life that says, for all that God has done for me, I cannot help but give back. She had to give to the giver. Hey, when you go to somebody's house and they're preparing a meal for you, first time you go to their house especially, my, my wife will always take a gift to the home. Why do you take a gift to home? Because you, they're about to give you the gift of hospitality and you know the work they went through. So she'll bring a gift and so that she's given back to the giver. I don't know if I've ever told you about my dog or not. I've got a killer, killer dog. I'm not exactly sure what kind of dog it is. I think they told us it was a Himalayan pit viper apache death wolf i think is what it was uh we got it. it's dangerous dog i, I would have brought her here today but she's dangerous we, we we just can't let people you know do much with her because she's a himalayan pit viper apache attack death wolf and uh there 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 she is that's our cute little dog and um she's that's actually her Um, I am humiliated. We, we took her to the uh, boarding place of the day, and this is the picture they sent back to my wife. I woof you. I, I don't know. Um, it's a girl's dog. I know man cards at the door. I get it. I, 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 I wanted a Himalayan pit viper attack Apache wolf, but just think of this dog whenever you think of my dog, but that's really what I have. <laughs> she has this annoying habit that when you, she, and by the way, well, I want to say objects in television are bigger than they appear, but that's not true. She weighs about five pounds. She, she's putting on weight lately. She's got up to six, so I, I think she'll drag a bear down any day now. Um, uh, she's getting a little chubby, and so um, 
She has this annoying habit when you pet her, she, she licks your hand when you pet her. Now, it's not that bad, but sometimes you just want to pet your dog and you, you pet her and she, she starts trying to lick your hand and she'll lick it as long as you pet her. And, and I thought, why is this dog licking my hand? And I got online and I looked at that Caesar, the dog guy, the dog whisperer, whatever. And he, here's what he says on his website. He says that, that when, if you're petting a dog and a dog's licking your hand, it is your dog's way of showing affection and appreciation back to you. So every time I stroke this little dog, she licks my hand. It's her way of saying Thank you for the affection you're showing her. It's a natural reflex for her to try to tell you thank you. Now listen, I, I don't want to compare you to a dog and God as our owners this morning. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I do want you to get the principle. I, I want you to grab the natural reaction to that. That just like it's in my little dog right here that you ought to, you, you, you ought to give back to the giver. I, I want you to understand that there ought to be this natural reaction in us that God has given us so much that we ought to naturally give back to the giver. Let me show you. Paul said the same thing in Romans 12.1. Look at this verse. Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. I mean, you give everything you have back to God. Why? You're wholly acceptable to God. Notice what he said, which is your reasonable service. Can I say to you, for all that God has done for us, it is your reasonable service, not above and beyond. It is your reasonable service. That's why you ought to never have to be begged as a child of God to tithe when the offering plate comes around. Why? That's your reasonable service. You ought never have to be begged as a child of God to serve God. Why? That is your reasonable service. You ought never have to be begged to come to church or to live for Jesus. Why? That is your reasonable service for all that God has done for us. It's not above and beyond. It's our reasonable service to give back to the giver. And there ought to be this natural inclination in every child of God, just like Mary, to give back to the one who's blessed us. And I'm asking you this morning, are you giving back naturally to the one who has given so much to you? Are you giving back naturally to the one who has blessed you with salvation, who has blessed you with blessing, who have given so much into your life? Can I say to you this morning, hang with me, if God were to cut off every blessing in our lives today, I pray to God that doesn't happen for me, you, or anyone, but if God were to cut off every blessing in our lives today, we still have enough to thank him for the rest of our lives. It's a natural reaction to give to the giver. Let me show you the second thing Mary teaches us, and that's this. If they don't have what you have, they're not going to feel what you feel. If people don't have what you have, they're not going to feel what you feel. Know this about being a thanksgiver. Not everyone is going to get it. There are going to be people around you that if they have not experienced what you've experienced in your heart and in your life, they may even make fun of you. They may even make light of you. 
I'll tell you what Mary did. She had this costly perfume. It was called nard. Nard was made from a root that was in India, so it was not close to Israel. It had to be imported. Not only that, because it was so expensive, they would put it in these alabaster flasks that had, a, that had a, uh, a long neck on it. So you could pour out one little drop at a time. If you wanted to pour it all out, it wouldn't all come out of that flask. You had to break the flask off to be able to, uh, the neck off to pour it out of that flask. And uh, uh, scholars tell us that in all probability, this, this flask was a family heirloom that had been passed down from mother to daughter for generations because here's probably what would happen. When you got that, that nard uh, from your mother, it was probably something that was maybe given to you on a special event in your life. Maybe on your wedding day, you would put just one little drop of nard on as, as an oil, as a perfume. And that would be all you would get. You may never put it on the rest of your life. And then you would take the box and the flask that that was in, that alabaster flask, and you would hand it on to your daughter. And she may only put one or two drops on it all of her life. This was an incredibly precious gift, not just financially, but it was an heirloom. And when Mary went and got this gift, it was an enormous sacrifice on her part. And Judas, the betrayer, reacted so strongly about the gift. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that he was indignant and he rebuked her. And the word in the Greek is in the present tense, which means he kept rebuking her over and over. In short, Judas Judas berated her. Why would you do that, Mary? Why would you pour all of that on Jesus? He's not worth. How much was it? 300 denarii. At that moment, uh, an average man working in a day job would make about one denarii a day. So that means it was a year's wages. The same equivalent in our day of about $45,000. Here Mary broke this precious heirloom. No telling how many generations it had been passed down and how many it would be passed down. She broke this, this expensive alabaster uh, oil and it was $45,000 in our day and Judas couldn't take it. Judas said, I, I can't understand Mary why you would give that gift to Jesus. That money, that, that could have been sold and that could have been put in the treasury and that could have been given to the poor. And listen to me, that sounds like a great idea. But Judas's motives weren't pure. Here's what John tells us in John chapter 12, verse number six. He said here, this Judas said, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. Judas was a thief. He had the money box and Judas would take the money and he would steal it from Jesus and spend it on himself. And so Judas didn't care about the poor. Oh, he tried to put it in spiritual terms, but he didn't care about the poor. He was just trying to get money for himself. And Mary took this expensive thing in order to be thankful. She gave it to Jesus and Judas never understood it. The people around never understood it. Why? Because he didn't have what Mary had. So he didn't feel what Mary felt. Listen to me, there are some of you here today, you want to know what all the fuss about Christianity is, what all the fuss about Jesus is, why are we always talking about Jesus and God and being thankful and grateful and you don't don't get it. 
Why in the world would somebody put money in an offering plate? Why would, in the world would somebody give up 10% of their income? That's a nice car payment. Why would somebody give uh, a, a church hours during the week? Why would somebody come every Sunday? I don't get it. I don't get it. Here's why you don't get it. Because if you don't have what I have, you're not going to feel what I feel. If you haven't experienced what I've experienced with Jesus, then you're not going to feel about him the same way those of us who know him feel about him. It was uh, this past year I took my two son-in-laws to the first ever Braves game at SunTrust, first ever playoff game at SunTrust Park. It was an exciting game. Braves won, I think the score was 6-5. to five. And... Um, it was electric the whole game. Josh talked about it as soon as we walked in the stadium. And the, the, stadium was, the stadium was a buzz. The stadium was on fire. You could feel the electricity. We had awesome seats for this game. And you could just feel the electricity in the air. It's just one of those games where you knew something good was going to happen. And it happened in the second inning that um, there were two outs and the bases got loaded. And, man, something happened in the second inning. Ronald Acuna came to bat. And, man, he – let me show you. advantage of it the 3-1 and Acuna swings it's a high drive to left center field Taylor back at the wall it is gone a grand slam for Acuna Hey, that video doesn't tell you half of what we experienced while we were there. We were sitting down the first baseline. We had awesome seats. We were high-fiving people. We were jumping and shouting. We were hugging strangers, man. We, if, you, if somebody had a baby, we'd have kissed it. We, we, it was just going wild in the stadium. Look, you felt the breachers vibrating in the stadium. It was so amazing. Braves went on and won the game. It's about the longest game in baseball history, man. That game went on and on and on and on and on and on and on. We finally got in the car hours and hours later. We got home. I went to bed. It was wee hours of the morning. I told Sherry, you just go to sleep. And uh, uh, she, when we got home the next morning, I was telling her about it. Man, I still all hopped up about it. And I said, hey, Acuna, listen, Acuna became the youngest player in Major League Baseball history to hit a grand slam in a playoff game. He was 20 years, 292 days old. He beat out Mickey Mantle, who hit a home run, a grand slam in a playoff game in 1953. He was 21 years, 349 days. He was a full year younger than Mickey Mantle. Acuna just won National League Rookie of the Year. Somebody say amen, oh me, or something right there. The next morning, I was all hopped up still, man. I didn't sleep. The stadium had been shaking. I got up, and Sherry's in the house, and I'm like, hey, let me tell you what happened. Acuna's second in Grand Slam home run. She said, that was nice. <laughs> Somebody high-five me. Somebody spike a lamp in the living room. Do something, baby. She says, that's nice. I mean, she, she got it. That was nice. Didn't hug me, didn't spike, didn't break anything. Vibrate, house didn't vibrate. You know why? She hadn't experienced what I experienced, so she didn't feel what I felt. 
And I'm going to tell you, when somebody doesn't get excited about giving back to Jesus and being grateful, I don't know that they've met the same Jesus I've met. See, if you have, you're not debating on the giving you're doing to God. If you have, you understand you owe him your life. You're glad to be a thanksgiver. And I'm telling you, have you met the same Jesus I've met? Because I'm going to tell you, if you're in love with Jesus, if you, if you love to come to church, if you love to give him your all, you're going to be surrounded by people who just don't get it. But if they don't have what you have, They're not going to feel what you feel, and you press on anyway. God deserves all the thanks, all the glory, all the gratitude you can give him because of all he's done in our lives, and you press on knowing, hey, there are plenty of Judases that just don't get it. Here's a third way. She became a thanksgiver. She took what she had, and she did what she could. She took what she had and she did what she could. Now, I couldn't love this Bible verse more. Jesus defended Mary. They started berating her. And Jesus interrupted and he said, hey, listen, you're always going to have the poor with you. He knew Judas' heart. You're always going to have the poor with you, but this is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. The anointing she has done, she has anointed me for my burial. Now, nobody had a clue what he was talking about in that room. But understand, the Jews did not embalm people. They, with people they loved and cared about, the family would put oil and spices on the body as a sign of affection. It would help with the stench of decay. And so when she put this oil on uh, Jesus, listen, he's going to be dead in just a few days. And this oil was, would have lingered forever. You know, it, like, like this smell wasn't going away. She broke the whole bottle. It was meant to give out a drop at a time. And she broke the whole bo- bottle and poured it all over his body. And the only way I can describe it, like, men, you ever been riding in the road, maybe in your pickup truck with your wife, and she's getting ready going down the road, and she's got perfume in her purse, and you see her whip it out, and she's about to spray it on her in your truck riding down the road? Couple things. I don't want my truck smelling like a gardenia blossom. Like, like Sherry, I love you. I'll take a, you know, but this ain't going to work. Let me pull over and let me, let me let you squirt it just outside a little bit so I can breathe. I love how you smell, but other men get in my truck. It's supposed to smell like gasoline and motor oil, not a gardenia blossom. Listen, Jesus smelled like a gardenia blossom. He anointed his body with oil. And here's what Jesus said. The whole world will talk about what she's done. And I'm here today, 2,000 years later, and this anointing was, is still part of the gospel story. But look in verse number eight in your Bible. Look in verse number eight. I want you to notice verse number eight and notice what Jesus says. She has done what she could. I love that. See, unless you get the idea that God needs a year's salary or a precious heirloom that you don't have, here's what Jesus said. You just do what you can do. Here's what Jesus was saying. Do your best with what you have and you will become a thanksgiver. I mean, there are things we can all do. We can all pray. We can all praise. We can all say thank you. Look, God said it 
financial giving so we can all tithe. It's a percentage of your income. It's not a dollar amount. God blesses you with enough for you to give back to him. There's some things that we can all do. But then there's some things that only certain people can do. I'll be honest. We can go around the room and there are those of you in here, you can give more financially than I could give or I could give more than you could give. There's some in here, you've got more talent than me and you can give more talent. There's some you have more time. I mean, that goes on and on. But here's what Jesus said. Everybody's different, but you take what you've got and you do the best with what God has given you and that is how you say thank you to the Lord. You take what you have and do the best that you can. Mary took what she had and she did what she could. And she gave the very best thing she could give in order to say thank you to God and to be a thanksgiver. And here's what God's asking of you today. Take what he's given you and do the best you can with it. And that's how you tell God, thank you. Close your Bibles. Let me, let me tell you a story and I'm done. I want you to close your Bibles and look right up here because this story is going to take a couple of minutes. It was about 2 a.m. on September the 8th, 1860. Follow me, 1860. This boat, here's an old, 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 old photograph. The Lady Elgin was in Lake Michigan. She was carrying about 300 passengers and crews from Milwaukee to Chicago and back on a sightseeing trip. I don't know if you've ever seen Lake Michigan or not, flew over. I mean, it's, they're basically oceans, but they're just lakes. It was going from Milwaukee to Chicago, and about 2 a.m., it ran over a schooner called the Augusta. And the captain of the Lady Elgin did not realize how badly the ship was damaged, and he kept going. And about 30 minutes later, instead of turning the boat to shore, he kept going into the water, and the, the steam engine, the boilers, they broke through the hull where she was damaged, and Long story short, the ship broke in two, plunged to the bottom of Lake Michigan. They were only able to get a few lifeboats out, and very few people made it to the lifeboats. The majority of people on the boat perished. There were some people that were able to swim to shore, but here was the problem with the shore that night. There was such an undertow from the shore. People would actually get their feet on, on land, on, on, uh, be able to stand up, but the undertow would drag them hundreds of yards back out into Lake Michigan. And so they, they were exhausting and drowning trying to get to the shore. There was one guy who was an experienced swimmer. He was a Northwestern University student by the name of Edward Spencer. Edward Spencer was a, was a great swimmer, even in college. And so he, he had made it to the shore, and he got some men to tie a rope around him. And Edward Spencer would swim hundreds of yards back out into the ocean, and he would see dozens of people out there perishing. He'd grab one or two the best he could, and then the men on the shore would pull the rope back in because that's the only way they could get him in. Edward would swim back out, grab another one. They'd pull the rope back in. And Edward would swim back out and see... Dozens of people, every time he went, there were fewer people. You see dozens of people. And that night, Edward saved 17 people that way. 
But after six hours of swimming out there, when they pulled him back the last time, he was bruised, he was cut, he was exhausted, and he passed out on the shores of Lake Michigan. He woke up the next day and his brother Will was caring for him and he was in the hospital room. And when he woke up, the first words out of Edward Spencer's mouth were this, Will, did I do my full duty? Did I do my best? The newspaper rooms, uh, newspaper uh, uh, all around the nation carried the story about Edward Spencer. He never was comfortable in the spotlight. He didn't like the spotlight at all. He, he said he couldn't get the faces and the cries of the victims. He had not been able to save out of his mind because every time he swam out, he could rescue one out of dozens. It was almost 50 years later he returned. His brother would say that when Edward would talk about it, he would turn pale. He would know when he was talking about it. He would turn pale and he would say, Will, tell me the truth. Did I do my best? Edward Spencer's honored by a plaque at Northwest, North, Northwestern University. There are a couple of sad footnotes to his story. One, he was injured so badly that day that he spent the rest of his life in a wheelchair. And he told his brother Will at the time of his death, he didn't say it publicly, his brother Will told the story later on. He said, Will, of all 17 people I rescued, not one person returned ever in my lifetime to tell me thank you for saving their lives. What a sad, sad turn of events. But in 1924, a young man named Elgin Edwin Young had read some newspaper clippings about that story that happened so many years ago. And he, Edwin Young was a Christian, a believer, and God moved upon his heart and he wrote a hymn that we still have in our hymn books today. It's entitled, Have I Done My Best for Jesus? Let, let me show you just a verse and a chorus. He said, I wonder have I done my best for Jesus who died upon the cruel tree to think of his great sacrifice at Calvary. I know my Lord expects the best from me. I wonder, have I cared enough for others? Or have I let them die alone? I might have helped a wanderer to the Savior, the seed of precious life I might have sown. And then the chorus, how many are the lost that I have lifted? How many are the chained I've helped to free? I wonder, I wonder. Have I done my best for Jesus when he's done so much for me? Have I done my best for Jesus who has done so much for me? Jesus said in verse 8, she has done what she could. She took the best that she had in order to say thanksgiving back to God. She said, I'm going to give my best to Jesus because my heart's overflowing with gratitude. And so I wonder, have we done our best for Jesus? He has done so much for me. Would you stand with me across the building? Heads bowed and our eyes closed. I want you to ponder that question for a moment. Have I done my best for Jesus? 
Could be that you're here today and you don't know Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life. Listen, he gave his best for you so you could be saved. And you can trust him today and know that heaven is in, Christ in your life, heaven is your home. It's as simple as ABC, admit you're a sinner, believe Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose again the third day and confess him as Lord and Savior of your life. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I have got two men down here, staff members who'd love to pray with you and all you have to do is walk down the aisle. We hope that you've enjoyed the message this week, helping you to apply God's word to your daily life. For more information about Peavine, be sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and at our website, www.peavine.org. Thanks for listening.